Thank you guys for having me. I'm glad to be here. My name is Jerome Massalimoni. Good morning to all of you. Um, this is actually the second time that I've been here. The first time, no one else was here. Um, Pastor Emmanuel, he brought me just to kind of show me the church. He and I were friends from California. So when he was out there for a while, he met me and my wife. And him and his wife were very gracious to us. And they welcomed us into the church that they were at at the time. And they were very um, warm and inviting, and we were new to the area. We didn't really know anybody. And so we went to the church, and they were like, oh, look at this, these little lost ducklings. And they, like, took us, and they're like, oh, come here and sit. Have you eaten? And they were very, you know, very kind to us, and we appreciated that. So uh, we came to visit them, I think it was like a year ago, a year or two ago, and he brought me here and showed me the church. And I remember thinking, like, as I came in here, I was like, wow, this is such a nice church. I wish that I could be here on Sabbath and like see what it's like when it's full of people. And the great irony is that now, about a year or so later, I am here and it is Sabbath morning, but the church is still not full of people. But like my brother said, I don't think that really matters because God is here. It's his day. We're here worshiping him. And as such, of course, God is here with us, even if these pews aren't all full. But I suppose I should tell you a little bit about who I am so that you know something about the person that's standing before you. Um, I have worked in a lot of different things, but technically by trade, I'm a pastor. That's what I studied in school, and that's what I've trained for. And, of course, life has a funny way of moving you around, and my wife is actually a doctor. She was in medical school at Loma Linda. That's where we met uh, Pastor Emmanuel and Eugenia. But what happened was I worked for a couple of years as a pastor, and then I went to be with her in Loma Linda while she was finishing med school. So she had one year to go, and I was like, okay, well, I need to find a job. What am I going to do? So I tried to get a job as a pastor, and that didn't work out. So I worked as an aide at an elementary school. And in my first job as a pastor, I had done teaching on the side as well. So I had some experience with kids. But as those of you who have ever worked with small children know, there's a big difference between children and children, if you, if you get what I'm saying. Because children have questions, right? And so do children, but the questions are not the same at all. And the, the problems that come up are not the same at all, right? So for me, who I'm very young, I'm, the children are not that much younger than I am, so it was a little bit strange to be treated as like this big adult figure who had all the answers, because I didn't, but I did my best. I mean, I was just an aide, right? So if something I really didn't know what to do, I could just like hand them off to a teacher and hope for the best. But then, when my wife finished med school, we moved to Michigan. And I said, okay, you know what? I've had enough of the children. Let's go back to being a pastor. Let's go back, you know, doing the thing that I've, you know, trained. I have a master's degree and everything. Like, let's do the thing that I've studied to do. And God was like, what was that? Did you say you wanted to work with even younger children? And I was like, no, no, that's not what I said. And then I was a preschool teacher for a year. So, when I said there's a difference between children and children, there's an even bigger difference between children and children. Because now they don't know anything about anything. And when I had worked as a pastor and a teacher, I was teaching grades 5 through 12. So I had to make lesson plans and things like that. And I remember I would make the lesson plans and like the principal would come and be like, so what is the learning objective for this week? And I would say something very, you know, like f complex sounding like, oh, we're, we're exploring the personal ramifications of the sacrifice of Christ. And she'd be like, that sounds good. And I'd be like, okay. But then I started lesson planning for four-year-olds, 
And it's completely different because you're like, okay, so what do I want the four-year-old to learn today? I want him to learn what a circle is. And I remember I was looking at the, the other teachers, and they would, like, be discussing the lesson plans. They'd be like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And I would sit there, and I'd be like, is, so are we going to take, like, the whole week for them to learn what a circle is? Because I thought that seemed very silly. I was like, it's a circle. Like, it's, but then they all looked at me because I was the silly one. They were like, Jerome, they don't know what a circle is. Like, they have no idea what that is. It's not a simple, like, if someone doesn't know what that is, you have to introduce them to that concept. Like, yeah, it takes a week. I was like, oh, okay. So it was very awkward for me because the kids would be asking questions and they'd be, you know, when you go to school as a three, four-year-old, the teacher is like this fountain of knowledge, right? And that's the great illusion is that teachers are supposed to be like really, really like, oh, they have, like when you're a kid, you think the teacher knows everything. So I sat there and the kids are asking me these questions and I'm just like, look, man, I don't know. I don't know why you need to do this. I just, the, the other teachers told me you need to do this. So please just put the peas in the pod so that we can make the, 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 the craft and then we'll move on. My macaroni's gone. Okay, I'll, I, don't, I don't know, man. I'm sorry, you're out of macaroni. Can we, can we find some? Does anyone else have any macaroni they want to share with him? No, but I'm there. I was like, what am I doing? And it was very uncomfortable for me because I was very out of my comfort zone. And a lot of times it felt like, kind of like, the, you know, that expression, the blind leading the blind, where the kids are like, they're asking me for help. And I'm like, look, man, I don't even know, like, are you doing it? Like, they're supposed to be learning handwriting. It's like, am I doing this right, Mr. Jerome? I'm like, I have no idea, man. I mean, you made an O, but apparently, like, if you don't do it, the circle in the correct direction, it's wrong or something. I was like, I don't know, man. Like, am I holding the pencil right, Mr. Jerome? I was like, look, don't ask me. I never held the pencil right when I was your age, so I have no idea. So it's very uncomfortable for me. But that kind of thing does happen a lot, as you, and that's one of the great illusions of adulthood. Like, when you're a, a child, you're growing up, you think, like, that the adults around you, that they know what they're doing and they have the answers. And adult, one of the great realities of growing up for me that I've realized is like no one ever really gets it all together no one ever really knows everything that they're doing you just learn how to like do your best and when you don't know what you're doing you kind of try to like hide that fact and not like broadcast it to the whole world and just do your best to overcome your weaknesses but a lot of times throughout the day we are really the blind leading the blind around trying to figure out like well none of us really know what we're doing we're just doing our best and unfortunately when it comes to things of the Bible and of religion, like, it's not really that different. I wish that, like I said, I'm a pastor, and I wish that I could stand up here and tell you that, oh, like, when the pastor speaks, like, you could say with confidence that he knows what he's talking about and for sure that it's true. But just like in any profession, like, sometimes the professional gets up and he says something with confidence, and he's like, I hope that's true. And that's the reality, is that we as humans are just inherently flawed. So even when it comes to things like religion and the Bible, like if someone gets up and is giving you guidance, like sometimes they've got it right and sometimes they don't. And God in heaven looks down on us and he sees that. He sees us trying to help each other. And we talk about like, oh, what should we do? Like, how should we believe? Like, what should we think about God? And God in heaven, he looks down and he smiles at us because he sees his children and he says, those of you who've been to the South, you know that expression. He says, oh, bless their hearts. They're, they're trying, right? They're doing the best that they can. But God in heaven, he sees that a lot of times we are misguided. And that's just a consequence of sin. Because originally, the plan was never for humans to have to guide other humans on spiritual matters. Good morning. 
the plan was for God himself to speak with us, because that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve walked around, and when they had questions, God was there. So they just turned to God and said, hey, God, what do you think of this, or what do you think of that? It wasn't that Adam had to ask Eve, like, hey, I have this question. What do you think I should do? Eve could give her opinion, but she would say, you know, you could just ask God, because he's right there. And vice versa, if, Adam, if Eve had a question, she could ask Adam, and Adam could give his opinion, but he could also say, look, why don't you just talk to God? He's right there. That was the plan for how it was supposed to work. God was supposed to be the guide for all things, like, good and pure and holy. But because of sin, there has to be that separation. So as a result, people do their best to kind of lead other people, and it has varying degrees of success. So that's why we see all through the Old Testament, even God's chosen people who God comes and he writes with his finger and he says, okay, here it is. Here are the guidelines. There's only 10 of them and they're very simple. I literally wrote them myself. Don't, don't like, don't get it twisted. This is what you need. But even then, if you look at what happened, not only did the children of Israel not follow the guidelines that God wrote for them, They changed them. They added things to them. They took things away. They modified them to to be more like how they thought it should be. So you fast forward several thousand years, and the children of God are living this strange, modified version of what he gave them. And God looks down and says, you know, if they're going to get it, they're going to need to hear it from me. Right? So he sends his son down. And of course, there are plenty of reasons that you can say, well, I think Jesus came down for this reason or for this reason. And those reasons could all be true. But for our purposes today, I hope you can all agree with me that one of the reasons Jesus came to this earth was because he wanted to show us and explain to us what it meant to be a good person, what it meant to be a godly person, because he had tried to explain it many, many times. He'd written the law and given it to them. He'd spoken through the prophets. But if you look at the people living in the time of Jesus, they still didn't get it. So Jesus says, you know what? If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. So he goes down and he talks to the people. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he immediately tells them, like if that was his first ever sermon, he's getting up and he's explaining things. And from the start, he says, do not think that I'm here to do away with all the old things from before. I'm not here to say, hey, all that stuff from before is wrong or incorrect and we're setting it aside. No, I'm here to expand what you already know because you think you understand it, but you don't. So I'm going to give you the more expanded, the more improved version. And the exact words that he uses is, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, then you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, for those of you who remember, the Pharisees were the religious authorities of the time. They were the ones who were supposed to be leading the people in religious matters and showing them like, well, this is the way you should speak, the way you should act, the way that you should live. But the Pharisees, what they had done is they had kind of made the law a hindrance to God's people. They had made it something heavy to bear. They had made it something that brought no joy, brought no happiness. People were not excited to do what God had told them to do because the Pharisees had made it seem like God had placed his very restrictive rules upon his people. For example, they couldn't walk a certain distance on Sabbath. So it's like, well, what if I live really far away from like my family and I want to go see them on Sabbath? Sorry, you can't walk that far. That counts as work. You can't do it. Oh man. So they had to just stay home. Couldn't, couldn't walk that far because that would be a sin if I walked that far. If I walked like 
just a little less than that distance, it would be okay. But nope, I can't walk that far. So that's a sin. Can't do that. I can't light a fire. What if it gets cold? Sorry, can't light a fire. It's a sin. What do you mean? Why is it a sin? Don't ask us. Listen, it's a sin. We're telling you. So the people had all these weird rules that the Pharisees were giving them. And yes, they had their explanations and their reasons for that. Don't get me wrong. But my point is that they had made the law into something that it was not meant to be. God did not give us his laws to crush us under their weight. He gave us those laws so that we could learn to be happy by following them. But the children of Israel who did their best to follow these rules, they were not happy. And the great irony was that the Pharisees themselves did not follow God's law either. They were cruel. They were harsh. They lied. They stole. They cheated. And they benefited from their position and took advantage of the people. And Jesus, as he's coming down, talking about having people's righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, he saw the looks in the Pharisees' eyes. And he knew that they were going to be very unhappy with him as he worked on earth. And for those of you who know the story, that is what happened. The Pharisees hated Jesus. They tried to kill him. They lied about him. They tried to embarrass him publicly, all kinds of things. And for the most part, Jesus was pretty calm about it. Jesus never really, like, attacked them, that is, until towards the end of his ministry. If you look at Matthew chapter 23, which is where we're going to be reading from today, Matthew chapter 23 is, in my creative interpretation of the Bible, is when Jesus says, you know what, I've had enough. I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but when you go to work, sometimes your coworkers say something or they do something, or your boss comes in and says something or does something, and you have to bite your tongue because you say, you know what, I need this job, and I, like, I need to be able to pay the bills. I, I, I cannot say what I want to say because if I do, I will not have money coming into my account. But then sometimes when you get a new job lined up, and you got that six weeks notice in or whatever, however many weeks you give notice, and you're there, and that boss comes in, and a coworker comes in, they say something, and you have that moment where you think to yourself, you're like, you know, what are they going to do to me? I'm, I'm quitting anyway, right? Like, what are they going to say? So Jesus, in my creative interpretation of events, Jesus has this moment here. Because Jesus has been ministering now for three and a half years. This is the final week of his ministry. So he's in Jerusalem. He knows what's about to happen, and he's there in the temple, and he's preaching. And the Pharisees are coming in, and you know the Pharisees are always doing their thing. They're always scheming in the corners. They're always trying to make things worse. And Jesus says, you know what? I don't have to tolerate this anymore. Like, what are they going to say? They're going to kill me in a couple days anyway, right? So why don't I just say it like it is? And maybe this time when I speak harshly and condemn them, maybe this will shock them and help them see the error of their ways because they haven't. So Jesus, this is what he does. And in Matthew chapter 23, he goes through this list of things that are wrong with the Pharisees. And he's not saying it in private to his followers, like, hey, guys, just remember. No, he's, like, speaking to the crowd about the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are there. So people are kind of like, oh, man, this is, this is interesting. Jesus has never done this before. And the Pharisees are also sitting there like, wow, this guy's coming right at us directly. And he goes through this long list of things that they're doing wrong. So... He tells them a lot of different things, but then eventually he starts actually actively wishing woe upon them, pronouncing these woes upon the Pharisees. So if we look at these woes that he pronounces, starting in uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, 
you see the things that Jesus is saying, and they're very pointed. These are things that, if you, even just one of them, if someone were to say that about you, you would say, that's, that's really like harsh, man. Why would you say that? But Jesus doesn't just say one. As we go through, starting in verse 13, he tells them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. That's messed up. He's like, look, not, not only can y'all not get into heaven, y'all are so salty that you can't get into heaven. When you see other people trying to get into heaven, you stop them. And the Pharisees are like, okay. And Jesus continues on. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. And that part was true. They convinced the widows and the poor that instead of using their own resources to keep themselves alive, they said, no, you owe that money to the church. And they would take the money from people who had nothing and they would give them nothing in return, leave them to suffer on their own and benefit off of their, what little resources they had left. So that was true. But to call them out like that in such a public setting was unheard of. Jesus continues on, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So he's saying, not only are you sons of hell, you take so much time and so much effort to make one convert. And when you convert him, he's twice as bad as you are. And the people are sitting there like, man, Jesus, Jesus had this like ready to go. Have you ever gotten in a fight with someone where you're like, you bring something up and then they have this response that's like very calculated and it's like very like well put together and you think to yourself like, how long have you been waiting to say that to me? I don't know if that's ever happened to you before, but like me and my wife sometimes will, will like things will happen. Okay, so my wife is not here, which is sometimes is a good thing, sometimes it's not. But my wife and I, we're actually moving. That's why we're in the area right now. We're moving. We're just stopping for the weekend and we're driving uh, up to New Jersey. That's where we're moving to. So the U-Haul that you see um, in the corner, I don't know if you saw it, but that U-Haul is actually full of my wife and I, all our stuff. But the car that I came here in this morning is my wife's car. So yesterday, we had an incident where my wife was driving the car, and she was, like, backing up in a parking lot. We were, like, getting gas at Costco, and she was, like, backing up to make room for me to drive past. And for whatever reason, she wasn't looking where she was going. So she, like, backed up really, really hard into the, the enclosure that holds the shopping carts. So I'm horrified because I'm, like, my wife just wrecked our car. But I'm also trying really hard not to laugh because like, it looked really funny, like seeing my wife's face like, oh, and, like her glasses fall off and she's like looking around. So like on some level it was funny, but it was also kind of like bad because I thought we damaged the car. Thank God that we didn't. The car is completely fine. But later that evening, because I had tried not to laugh because it was super funny and my wife was not happy about it. But I was like, okay, maybe we can just talk about it later. So I, like, later that night when everything is settled and we'd arrived, I was like, can we talk about what happened this morning? And she whirls on me and without me, she said, if we can talk about how you drove like five miles, under, five miles under the speed limit the whole day, and that's why it took us 14 hours to get here, then yeah, we can talk about it. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess you had that ready to go. You were ready to say that. So I was just like, maybe we shouldn't have this conversation. But my point is that these are things as Jesus is saying them. He's not just like thinking of this off the top of his head. These are things that Jesus has had ready to go, and he's been ready to say them for a while, but he's been holding back, and now he's not. And the things that he's saying, they're very cutting, and they're very harsh, and they're true. So he's trying to, like, rattle the Pharisees to get them to see what they are. 
unfortunately, it's not working. So he tries even more, and he says in verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? He's making the point that you guys are so focused on money and possessions and you forget that the greatest thing is the temple and the altar. It's me. It's not about the money. But he has this new thing that he's working in there. He's calling them blind. He's calling them fools. Because now he's trying to emphasize to them, like, how can you not see what you're doing? How can you not see the truth that is in front of you? Jesus himself, the truth, the one who spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he has come down and has been telling them that they've got it wrong. And they haven't been listening. And he's like, you guys are blind. How can you not see this? And he really likes this word. He likes calling them blind because he keeps doing it. Continuing on in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And for those of you who have seen camels, they're rather large creatures. This is extreme hyperbole intended to make a point that you are so focused on these things that you think are important, you're missing the huge actual problems in your life. You guys are blind guides. You're attempting to lead the children of Israel. You're attempting to lead them around and show them how they should live. But then when I come down and I try to show them how to live, you tell them that, that I've got it wrong. You tell me that I'm a son of Satan you hypocrites, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. He continues on, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus really liked that idea of the clean outside, dirty inside, so he takes it a step further. You are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteousness to, righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. But Jesus saves the worst and most cutting rebuke for last. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets, and Jesus pauses. Again, in my creative interpretation of the story, Jesus says that, and he pauses, and he looks at the Pharisees. Because the implication is clear. He says, you guys talk bad about your forefathers who murdered the prophets that I sent. You build these amazing tombs for them, and you stand around, and you talk about how we would have been different than our forefathers. If we had lived in that time, we would not have killed the prophets. We would have listened to them. And Jesus just pauses and looks at them and says, really? As if you're not planning to kill me? And the Pharisees, it's very uncomfortable because the Pharisees are sitting there and they understand what Jesus is implying. He knows what they're doing. But he's not stopping them. He's just pointing it out. He's like, look, let it be stated for the record that I am aware that you are planning to kill me. And you think you're so different from your forefathers, but you're not. You are blind guides going around trying to lead people to do the right thing. And then the definition of good himself comes down before you 
you ignore him. You accuse him of being a blasphemer. You try to kill him. You plan to kill him now. And we read this chapter, and we look at the Pharisees, and if you're like me, you can't help but shake your head at them. You say, like, these guys, I can't believe they had it so wrong. They had it so twisted. Unfortunately, I have a little bit of bad news for you this morning. And I'll, I'll put it to you this way. As you notice, Jesus called them blind a lot. He liked that description of the Pharisees, so he kept using it. He was very insistent that they were blind, that they were missing the point. They were guides who were supposed to show people the way, but they were blind. They didn't get it. So he kept calling them that over and over and over. He kept calling them blind. If you turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, I want to show you another example of a time that God calls a group of people blind. Now, as you're turning there, I'll provide you a brief explanation of what I'm doing. Biblical scholars believe that the book of Revelation opens with kind of like a two-for-one deal. There are seven letters within the book of Revelation in those first few chapters that John wrote to different churches. So there were, just like we have a church here in Westchester, there were churches in different cities all throughout the area, and John, in the book of Revelation, he wrote seven letters, one to each of these different churches in different places. But biblical scholars believe that if you look at those letters from start to finish, they also form a timeline where the first church represents the first period in the history of the Christian church, and then the second church, or the second letter, is the second period, and so on, with the belief that the last letter, which we're reading now in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14, the last letter points to the Christian church in the last day. That's what a lot of biblical scholars have proposed. Now, for those of us here this morning as Seventh-day Adventists, part of what Seventh-day Adventists believe very strongly is that they, we, are part of that last day Christian church movement. So historically, we as Adventists have always really strongly identified with this um, this idea that, oh, we're the last church and this is our identity. We're the, the, not the last church, but we're part of the last day movement to move people towards being ready for Jesus' return, to guide them, to show them what it means to be like Christ. Unfortunately, as a result of our identity as being part of the last day movement, that means that this letter, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, is for us. So as we read it together, I want you to notice something. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, starting in verse 14, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I know your works, Laodicea. I know that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Has any of you, have any of you ever been on like a date or I don't know, maybe that may not be something that has happened recently for you. I don't know. I don't want to say but I know for me, when I was younger and I was in college, just smile, spoiler alert, I only ever dated one person and I ended up marrying her. I was very, very unsuccessful at finding a girl that I could go out with and be my girlfriend and all. And in the end, I mean, it doesn't really matter, right? As long as you have the one. But the point is that I remember there would be times I would be talking to girls and sometimes the girl is just not interested. It's like, okay, fair enough. You're not interested. There are other times the girl would be interested. You're talking, you're like, it's going well, like, oh, this is nice. But 
there were times where it would be back and forth. Sometimes she'd be interested. Sometimes she wouldn't be. And that was frustrating because it was like, look, if you could be cold towards me, then I would just know that I'm wasting my time and we'll move on. But if you could be warm towards me and show me that you are interested, then now we're going somewhere. But if you're going to go back and forth, if you're going to be lukewarm, that's very frustrating because then I don't know what to make of the situation. And I really didn't like that. And maybe you, maybe you can relate. But God in heaven is not speaking of a romantic relationship. He's speaking of this church, this Laodicean church, which we identify with. And he says that you are lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. You can't make up your mind. I wish that you would. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There are two groups of people in the New Testament that Jesus refers to as blind. The first group are the people responsible for his death. The second group of people is us. So for me, as I read that, it's very scary because Jesus says, Jerome, you think that you're so different from these people. You think you're so different from the Pharisees. But the great irony is that the Pharisees thought they were different from the people who came before them as well. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said the Pharisees looked at the past and said, wow, those fools, they killed the prophets. We would never do something like that. And then they killed me, Jerome. And now you stand here in the present. You look back at the Pharisees and you say, wow, those fools, they killed Jesus. I would never do something like that. And Jesus says, really, I've heard that before. You think that you're so different but I have seen blind guides before. I know what they look like. And you, Jerome, remind me of someone that I know. And I do not share this with you to simply reprimand or say shame on all of us. We are these blind people wandering around. Because as I established from the beginning, God in heaven is aware that we have this problem. He knows. It's not that he's like, expecting us to understand all these spiritual things on our own, and then he's disappointed that we don't. His frustration with me is that I do not believe myself to be blind. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He says, I'm frustrated because you, you go back and forth between loving me and not loving me, being into me and not being into me, but you think you have it all. You think you're wealthy, you're well-clothed, you have need of nothing, but that's not true. Jerome, you go home to your wife, you go home to your dog, you sit there and you think your life is great, you think that you're doing well, but you're not doing what I need you to do. You're not doing what I've put you on this earth to do. You think that you have it all, but you don't. You think that you can see, but you're blind. And what is more dangerous than a blind guide leading other people who does not even realize he is leading them the wrong way? So Jesus provides this counsel. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him 
and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus does not share this with us on this morning out of anger or out of frustration. He shares it out of love. He says, my children, I know that you can do better. To whom much is given, much is expected. We believe that the Bible has been written for everybody, but we are privileged to come to church and study the Bible together. Many people never open a Bible their whole lives. And God looks at them and says, I love you, my child. I will work with you in a different way. I will speak to you in a different way. But to us who read the Bible, who read the Sabbath school lesson, who go to church, who get up in a suit and tie and preach, God says, I expect more from you, my children, because you know better. You believe yourselves to be at the top. You believe yourselves to have it all together. And sometimes, sometimes we do this thing where we like humble brag. We say, oh, I mean, I don't have it all together, but I'm growing every day in Christ. And Jesus says, really? You're growing? When? When was the last time? I didn't notice that. I haven't noticed any change in you. What are you talking about? You're growing. Sometimes we find ourselves saying, not how much can I do for Jesus, but we st- instead we say, how little can I get away with? I know I do that sometimes. I say, well, I mean, if I read my Bible for a little bit, that counts, right? At least I read it. It's better to read it a little bit than not read it at all. And yes, that is true. But when I'm consistently putting in the bare minimum of effort, Jesus looks down at me and says, you lukewarm child, what are you doing? So on this morning, I want to leave you not with condemnation or judgment, but with hope. Because the hope that we have is God says, look, I worked so hard to show the Pharisees the error of their ways, and in the end, they didn't listen. But you, Jerome, you can be different. You have their example to learn from. And I'm speaking to you now. I'm asking you, buy gold for me. Buy garments for me. Buy eyesal for me. Let me give you wealth. Let me clothe you. Let me help you see. So as we leave from this place, I encourage you to go home and take a look at yourself in the mirror. And if you don't like what you see, then talk to God and say, God, I know that I could be better. I could be kinder. I could be more patient. I could be more loving. I could pray more. I could read my Bible more. There are so many things that we can do differently to be warm Christians, to open our eyes and see what God has for us to do. I'm not going to tell you what it is that each of you needs to do individually because that's not my business. God in heaven will speak to you just as he speaks, I believe, to us this morning. And as you ask him, Lord, show me how I can be a warm Christian. Show me how I can do the things you want me to do. God will speak to you in that moment and say, my child, this is what I have for you today. We read about Joseph. Joseph had many things that I'm sure were wrong with him. But every day he woke up and said, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And because he did that, God worked with him and showed him. And when the time came, Joseph guided not only his family, or his country, but the entire known world to safety from that famine. Imagine what God can do through you. So with that being said, I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Dear God, thank you so much for reminding us that while we may not realize it, sometimes we are really blind guides going around attempting to lead one another or other people outside the church to get to know you better 
and you look down at us and you say, my child, you do not even know me that well. You claim to know me, but you do not speak to me. When you do speak to me, all you have to say is a list of requests, as if I am some celestial Santa Claus. My child, it does not need to be this way. You remind us through the Bible, through the story of the Pharisees, that people who live this way do not end up doing the right thing. And Lord, you know we want to do the right thing. We are trying. Help us, please. Give us that gold refined in the fire. Give us those garments that are blessed and righteous. Give us that eye salve, anoint our eyes so we can see where we can do better. Please work with us each day to help us become a little bit more like you, a little bit warmer every day so that we may be blind guides no more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.